This last book of the Bible is presented to us as a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling of who he is and what he's doing and what he will do. Let's just uh, begin by reading some of these first verses in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask for your help as we look into this uh, incredible book this evening. Teach us from your word and help us to see your way for us in our day and age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this revelation to his bondservants, to Christ's bondservants, we've said is given in very symbolic, at least a lot of it's given in very symbolic and figurative language. It was written in a time of tribulation and persecution and that tribulation and persecution was about to get even worse and so part of what was being done here was an exhortation to the bond servants of Christ to persevere in hard times to keep on it's going to get bad but God will keep you so keep on uh, it was to provide confidence in God's victory over all the opposition that they were going to be presented with. And that was to the immediate audience, of course, the people that heard it at the time. But it was, it's to all of us because this situation doesn't change in, in general. The things that are presented here are still with us and will be until Christ comes again. So these are things for us all, even though they were written specifically for the people at that time, the, the seven churches that uh, John was addressing here. Um, a good summary. Let's just flip over. We're going to read this in a minute uh, again, but let's just uh, look at it quickly right here. A good summary of the whole book, I think, is in, in Revelation 17, 14 where it says, these will wage war against the Lamb. There's going to be a lot of, of creatures and things that he presents here that are going to wage war against the Lamb. 
But it's, here's, the, here's the wonderful thing. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So, uh, again, I think it's uh, a good summary. And right there you see uh, some imagery, but we're very familiar with this imagery, the fact that Christ is called a Lamb and the Lord. We understand that. But we're not so familiar with a bunch of the other imagery that's in this book. Uh, and we don't really know how the first century Christians understood some of these symbols. So we have to formulate an explanation from the context, you know, the book itself, and then from the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We've said that so much of uh, the imagery and the, the phrases and wording of the book of Revelation is in the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's uh, things that John borrowed, pictures and figures that he borrowed from the Old Testament and used them in his uh, present situation to explain things. So, uh, from the immediate context, the book itself, from the Bible, the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and then what we can learn from the history of that period. That's important, too, because if we're going to understand how these people in the first century understood this, it's good to know some of the history of that time that will help us see how they would have understood these things. So, the other thing that I wanted to emphasize last time was that we do need to be humble as we seek to interpret this book. <clears throat> we need to realize that there are some things we don't understand and probably won't understand, especially concerning some of the details. We should be able to get the general flow, the big picture, but some of the details related to the images and symbols we may not be able to pick up on. And then as an example of our need for humility, I spent some time the last time looking at one of the interpretations for one of the main figures of the book, this picture of Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. We said that more than two chapters of the book of Revelation is spent on this, so this is an important picture, symbol that we're given here. And this... Uh, evil woman is something that we need to understand if we're going to understand what, what John is trying to present to us here. And there's been much speculation down through the centuries as to what this represents, what John meant by this figure. We said that there's probably really only two possibilities that would come to the, John's mind and the mind of his first century readers, this great city that he's talking about, Babylon, either represented Jerusalem or Rome. And I presented the case last time for the idea that it, it was a symbolic representation of Jerusalem. And I, I do consider that the most likely interpretation. But as you read commentaries on the book of Revelation, you find that most commentators think Rome actually fits the description best. I want to give you some of the reasons for that position this time. We looked at Jerusalem last time. I want to present the other side this time. 
perhaps after you hear the things that I present tonight, you'll think I was wrong last time, which is fine. That's, I said, we need to be humble as we approach this, and I certainly could be wrong, and so that's why I want to try to give you the two possibilities here. I don't know how to do this, but to read, you know, some of these verses, I, I probably read too many last time, and I don't want to do that uh, again. I, I know it got too long last time. I know that because one of my sons told me afterward that he thought that I was trying to speak long enough that we'd see how some of these end time things turned out <laughs> right, right while I was speaking. So, so uh, I'm trying not to do that this time. But let's, uh, let's turn to chapter 17. And I, I just don't know how to do this but to read, you know, enough that we get a feel here. So, chapter 17, verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast who carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And then if you skip over to verse 9, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And then down to 14, <clears throat> These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called the chosen and faithful. And He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And I'm just debating here how much... Uh, well, let's just go on to the end of the chapter. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For, the, for God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city who reigns over the kings of the earth. And then in the verse, uh, chapter 18, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. 
and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Pay her back even as she is paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And then just one more verse, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Let me just very briefly review the position of Jerusalem being this harlot, Babylon the Great. First, the woman who that we're talking about here has killed the saints. She's drunk the blood of the saints. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. We saw how this fits to, in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, and stones those being sent to her. And he even goes on to talk to the Jews or say to the Jews of his day that they were guilty of all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. That seems to fit this account here. Next, we said that this city of Babylon, this great city, is equated with Jerusalem in Revelation 11.6 because it's, we're told there that this great city is where Christ was crucified. Well, that, where Christ was crucified was Jerusalem. And then lastly, and I think the most compelling part of the argument, is that over and over in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem itself, as the center of worship for the nation, was condemned for their harlotry, their prostituting of the nation, the, the capital, Jerusalem themselves, with pagan deities. And we looked at a number of scriptures along that line. So the overall picture would be Babylon, that is Jerusalem, is now playing the harlot with imperial Rome. We talked about Rome being the beast. This harlot sits upon the beast. Uh, we, I think we established that either the first or second time I spoke on the subject. So. You have the picture of, of Jerusalem playing the harlot with imperial Rome. She aligns herself with Caesar in crucifying Christ and persecuting Christians. But later on, as we just got through reading here in 1716, we see that the beast, that is Rome, turned on Jerusalem 
and destroyed it with fire, which seems to match what happened in 70 AD with the brutal Roman destruction of Jerusalem. So then the, the thing we should take away from this, I think, of the lesson for the church down through the ages uh, is that we must be very careful about what you might call civil religion, religion that compromises with the immorality and the idolatry of the state and with the surrounding society, compromising in order to advance its cause, uh, supposedly advance its cause. Such a harlot religion will show itself to, not to be any really real or true friend of Christianity, and the religion that rides the beast will always persecute the saints. It may look like they're advancing the cause of religion, but ultimately they're going to be those who will persecute the true Christians. Along with that, that type of religion will itself eventually be destroyed by the beast, which really was just using it for its own purposes anyway. And this is what happened to Jerusalem. Uh, they tried to accommodate and go along with, with, with Rome, and in the end, Rome turns and destroys Jerusalem. So that's kind of a summary of one way of interpreting this section of Scripture. But we want to look tonight at the more common view, which equates Babylon with Rome. Now, what I'm, what I'm going to do here is try to do my best to present that position, and then you'll have to decide which you think really fits the, the best. Here are some of the main reasons that most commentators equate Babylon with Rome. First of all, in Revelation 17, 18, it's said that this great city reigns over the kings of the earth. This fits Rome much better than it does Jerusalem. Rome was the capital of the largest and most powerful empire in the world uh, at that time, the most powerful empire that the, the world had ever seen. As Babylon was the great world power 600 years before Christ, now Rome was the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Number two, as Babylon destroyed the first temple six, in the 6th century B.C., so Rome was the destroyer of the second temple, Herod's temple, in the 1st century A.D. when John was writing. So Babylon destroyed the first temple, Rome destroyed the second temple. Three, Revelation was written, we're told uh, at the beginning, to uh, seven congregations in Asia Minor, areas that are now what we call Turkey, areas that are outside of Palestine but within the Roman Empire. It would seem most likely that these congregations, which were made at least partly, made up partly by Gentile converts, would understand the great city to be the capital city of the Roman Empire. Number four, and here's a, a pretty compelling one. Revelation 17.9 says, Here is the mind, which is wisdom. He, he just said he was going to explain who this 
this harlot is. So he says, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The woman sits on seven mountains. Now, it was a well-known description of Rome at that time as the city that sits on seven hills. In fact, what I want to do here, just briefly, is show you this is a copy of a uh, coin that was in circulation at that time. On this side of the coin, you see a picture of the Emperor Vespasian. He was the one who was the emperor when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It was his son, Titus, that actually destroyed it, but he was the emperor from 69 to 79 AD. You can, you can see right here it says Caesar Vespasius. And so that was on the front side of the coin, but on the back side of the coin uh, here, well, I got a little bit larger one. What this is a picture of, you can see Roma here. It's a picture of Rome, the, the woman, Rome, sitting on, if you would count them, you'd find out there's seven hills there. Well, let's just put it this way. If you're walking around with this coin in your pocket in 70 A.D., and John says, here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Well, there's the woman, Roma, sitting on the seven mountains. That would seem pretty clear, I would think, that he was talking about Rome. Number five. Revelation 17.1, we're told this great harlot sits on many waters. Jerusalem did not sit on any waters. It wasn't even, you know, it never was a sea power at all. Uh, Rome, on the other hand, sits on the Tiber River and controlled the whole Mediterranean. Great sea power. We're told in verse 15 that the waters which you saw on which the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This seems to fit Rome also as the controlling force throughout the entire Mediterranean region, much better than Jerusalem would. So another thing that points commentators to the fact that this Babylon was symbolic of Rome. Number six, Revelation 18, 9 through 24, we didn't read this, and you can read it later, but he goes through an exhaustive list of all the things that, uh, all the trade and, and cargoes and, and what the merchants and the shipmasters and the pas uh, passengers and the sailors were involved in in relationship to, to this Babylon. The items listed seem to point to a great commercial and industrial center and uh, although that could be Jerusalem, it seems more likely to be Rome. Uh, number seven, Rome was known for its luxury, its sensuality, and its extreme cruelty. At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it had just begun its persecution of believers. But soon it would be responsible for far more deaths of Christians than Jerusalem was. 
So it fits the picture of the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And yet, even though she was drunk with the blood of the saints, she also had this appeal because she, she's clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, great riches, great beauty involved. And commentators say that this seems to fit Rome quite well. You know, the persecution of, of the Christians started out Jewish, and then it was Jewish and Roman. They joined together for a while. And then pretty much after 70 A.D., it was all Roman persecution. That's a consideration, just the, the luxury and the sensuality and extreme cruelty that Rome was known for. Also, this is kind of an extra-biblical thing here, but there are a number of examples in other Jewish literature. I say other because, you know, a lot of the New Testament was written by Jewish people. But other Jewish uh, literature outside of, of the New Testament, there's a number of examples from this time period that label Rome as Babylon. So you've got the picture already there in, in, in other materials, other writings. It's possible that Peter was actually doing this at the end of his first epistle. Let's turn back to Peter just to show you that uh, this wasn't totally isolated in the book of Revelation. Outside of the New Testament you see it, but even in, the, in one other place here in the New Testament. Peter ends off his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 13 by saying, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now you might say, well, maybe they were, they were talking about somebody in Babylon. Well, at, this, at the time of the New Testament, Babylon was a dinky little place. Hardly anybody lived there. So it's very doubtful that he's actually talking about Babylon. It, it had virtually ceased to exist by this time. Just, I mean, that, that could be Jerusalem, that could be Rome. It kind of depends on where you think Peter and Paul were at the time. There's some indication that both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome, which would point more towards Rome, but that's not for sure. And so, anyway, that doesn't prove one way or the other, but it's an interesting little... If, if we knew what Peter meant by Babylon there, it'd help us a lot to nail this down. But, again, we're not. Again, most commentators think it's Rome. And then number nine, I think this is number nine. Like Babylon, Rome was a city of amazing wonders. You remember Babylon had the hanging gardens, just amazing architecture and buildings and things there in Babylon. Well, Rome was like that, amazing wonders, where the seductive power of the world seemed to be concentrated. And back in the 6th century B.C., it was Babylon. In the 1st century A.D., it was Rome. Babylon was called the Great Harlot because it symbolized all that allures and tempts and seduces and draws people away from God. It was a pleasure-mad, arrogant, and seductive city. Let's just look at a few verses along this line in the Old Testament. It won't, won't take long. But it's kind of important because when you start doing these Old Testament comparisons, you see, you start seeing some of the imagery that, that, that 
John used. Isaiah, well, we'll do all these out of Isaiah. You could go to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a number of places, Daniel, uh, a lot, but we'll just do them all out of Isaiah here for sake of time. Isaiah chapter 13, to see that we're talking about Babylon here. Verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now, we'll skip down for the sake of time. 19, and Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms. So here's a beautiful place, you see. The beauty of the kingdom, the glory of the Chaldean pride. There's the pride and, and beauty involved. Will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be put down. You see, Babylon's going to be put down, even with all its pride and beauty. Uh, chapter 14, verse 4. That you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased. So here, Babylon was an oppressor. And how the fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. So Babylon was a persecutor, just the same way Rome was. Skip over to verse 11. Your pomp and your music, the music of your harps, has been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bread beneath you and worms as your covering. So the pomp and the music, the all the beauty and splendor and, and uh, pomp and ceremony of this great metropolis was going to be brought down. Uh, 21.9. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Have you heard that before? See, that's right. That's where this came from. That's where that phrase came from. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. So, false religion associated with Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. 47, verse 7. Again, this is speaking of Babylon here. You can see that up in verse 1. But you start with verse 7. Yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know loss of children. But these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your sorceries, in spite of your great power and spells. And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. If you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away, and disasters will fall, disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. So, sitting as a queen and saying, I'm not going to be a widow. Uh, these are pictures that, that uh, John 
uses in the book of Revelation. As one writer said, Babylon symbolized the concentration of luxury and vice and glamour of this world. It was the embodiment of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And as Babylon was in that day, so Rome was when John was writing to the seven churches. It was the epitome of worldly enticement. Let's turn to back to Revelation chapter 14, 14, 8, just to get the, the comparison here. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then 18, we already read this, but just to emphasize, verse 7, here's Babylon saying, I said as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. See, that's right out of, out of the book of Isaiah. Well, another example would be this golden cup that's talked about uh, back in verse 4 of chapter 17. Here's a cup, a golden cup. It looks good. You know, here's a wonderful thing, a golden cup. The beauty and, and expensive cup to drink out of. The idea would be that it would entice the person to have a drink. There must be something precious in the, in the cup if it's made of gold, right? But the cup contains nothing but abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. That's the picture that we have of Rome. Beautiful architecture, beautiful, you know, roads and all the things that were associated with, with Rome that would pull a person away from God if they take a drink from this golden cup, which is full of abominations. So here's this harlot Rome, and it's presented in the scriptures as the, the direct opposite of God's city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, it's opposed to the pure bride of Christ. It's a prostitute, and it's opposed to the uh, New Jerusalem, which is from above. On top of all this sedu seductive sensuality that we've looked at here and talked about, by the time of Domitian, who was the 11th emperor of Rome, he reigned from 81 to 96, participation in the imperial cult, which included veneration of the Roman gods and, more importantly, the deification of the Roman emperors, was mandatory. You had to worship. By that time, about 100 A.D., about right in there, you had to worship the emperor. To not do so was considered by the state an act of treason. The emperor was a god, and you must worship him. Well, you can see how that is going to cause great problems for the Christian. For the Christian to say that Caesar is Lord would be partaking in spiritual prostitution. But to not do that meant you were, you'd be punished by death, most, most likely. Just as a little aside, I'll just say this. There are three words that totalitarian governments and tyrants cannot tolerate. 
those three words are Jesus is Lord. They cannot tolerate that because they have to be at the top. That's what it means to be a tyrant or have a totalitarian government. If you say Jesus is Lord, you don't fit in. And you will be in trouble. You'll see the wrath of the state come forth. For the first century church, and really the church down through the ages, the warning that we would receive from all this in terms of thinking about Rome um, being the, the new Babylon is that we cannot let ourselves be seduced or compromised by the world. We can't be part of this, what would be spiritual prostitution. We cannot do that. And so the admonition to God's people in that kind of situation is found. We read it there in verse 4 of chapter 18. Come out of her, my people. That was the, the word that God, God had for his people in this situation in the first century. And it's still a word God has for his people. Don't be part of this immoral, ungodly, uh, idolatrous situation that you may not participate in her sins and receive her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven as God has remembered her iniquities. Whatever the outward appearance might be, the harlot Rome is always opposed to the bride of Christ. Always. Has not, has, there's no place of compromise between the new Jerusalem and, and Rome. Anti-Christian governments have two main weapons against God's people, and we see them here. Persecution and seduction. Persecution, intimidation, and seduction, trying to draw you in. Rome and the Roman Empire used both of these. And God's word for his people in that situation was, Come out of her, my people. Don't participate in her idolatry in her immorality and don't be afraid of her wrath because Rome is cruel and eventually these type of situations will show their fangs but don't be afraid persevere don't be afraid of her cruelty be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life God will judge this enemy who sheds the blood of his people and, and that's what you see him telling his people here in this section we're looking at. Woe, woe the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she shall be laid waste. It may not look like it now. It looks like so big, so strong, so invincible, so immovable, so mighty. And the church seems so small and so weak. But in one hour she shall be laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And it says, A strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. That's what happened to the Roman Empire. It would fall. Rome, the proud, the sensual, the immoral city that killed God's people 
lies in ruins. You could think of the Colosseum, for instance, that place that symbolized all the Christians that were fed to the lions. So ruin, the martyrs will be avenged. This is what the, this is what Revelation's about. It's about the fact that, Christ, that Caesar is not Lord and Christ is. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. You could just sum it up like this. The Lamb is Lord. The Lamb is Lord. The one that looks weak is going to be strong. The one that looks strong is going to be put down. So these are some of the arguments in favor of Babylon the Great being a symbol of, of Rome. And you'll have to compare these with what I said last week concerning Jerusalem to see what you think best fits what's being presented here in the scriptures. I will say this, that one area that I don't think fits and why I kind of lean towards Jerusalem and not Rome and that's uh, chapter 17, verse 16 and 17. It says, The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these ten horns are kings, and the beast, these will hate the harlot. So if the, if the harlot's Rome, you're talking about the beast, which is Rome, hating Rome. I don't get it. That's why I don't think this one fits. These will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city who reigns over the kings of the earth. If the beast is symbolic of the Roman Empire and the emperors, uh, especially those who demanded worship, how can the beast eventually hate the harlot and burn her up with fire if the harlot's Rome. That's my dilemma in trying to fit Rome into being what's symbolized by Babylon here. It seems to fit Jerusalem much better and you see then Rome turning on Jerusalem and destroying it in 70 AD. So either way, we can say this. If you understand Babylon as Jerusalem, it's an example of apostate civil religion. Or if it's Rome, it's an example of the seductive power of the world that seeks to draw people away from God. Either way, these are things that the church has to deal with down through the centuries. It's something that was a reality to these people in the first century. It's also something that goes on and has teaching for us down through the centuries. I really, as I, as I try to understand the book of Revelation right now, at least at this point in my dealing with it, and I'm, every time I read through it or listen to it on tape, I, I see something new. So these things are not all just fixed in stone as far as how I see things. But, but it, right now what I see is a book that was written with specific with symbolism that was specific for the first century people and in general teachings 
things to God's church down through the centuries. If we try to take the specific symbolism and make it uh, for us today, we probably are going to get in trouble. But it was something that the first century folks, Christians, understood. And it's something that as we understand how they understood it, we can see how it applies. And it does apply down through history. All these things are important for us. Whatever, however you view these things, we realize that they're, they're real for us in America right now today. We may not have the degree of persecution, and we don't. The degree of persecution that was there in the first century church, it was, it was terrible. Uh, beyond belief, some of the things that were done. Nevertheless, we still have to deal. We still have to deal with Babylon. We still have to. And the great spiritual war on the saints continues. But this we have confidence in. Christ is victor. That's the, that's the message of the book of Revelation. If we look to him, we can triumph in whatever Satan, the dragon, throws at us, however he comes at us, we can triumph. They overcame, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. I'll close then. Uh, last time I mentioned... Uh, just a couple lines from a poem that I think fits real well. So, Jerusalem the Golden by Bernard of Cluny, written in the 12th century. He was feeling the same thing in the 12th century that we should feel in the 21st century that the first, the first century Christians felt. The world is very evil. The times are waxing late. Be sober and keep vigil. The judge is at the gate. The judge that comes in mercy. The judge that comes in might to terminate the evil and diadem the right. Give a crown to, to those who will follow him. O oh, happy retribution, short toil, eternal rest, for mortals and for sinners, a mansion with the blessed, that we should look poor wanderers to have our home on high, that worms should seek for dwelling beyond the starry sky. And now, I'm, this, is, this is a long poem, I'm just... Skip reading a few of the paragraphs. And now we fight the battle. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Now we fight the battle. And it was true then. It's true in the 21st century. And however long God leaves us here, it'll be true. And now we fight the battle, but then shall wear the crown of full and everlasting and passionless renown. And now we watch and struggle. And now we live in hope. And Zion in her anguish with Babylon must cope. That's what I quoted last week. That's, that's an ongoing testimony of the church of God. Zion, the people of God, in their anguish. It's not easy to deal with these things that are, are presented here in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and Zion in her anguish, with Babylon must cope. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. Beneath thy contemplation seek heart, sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not, what social joys are there, what radiancy of glory, what light beyond compare. And then he closes with this. Exalt, O dust and ashes, the Lord shall be thy part. See, that's the message. That's the end message of the book of Revelation. You're going to be with the Lord. Whatever happens to you here on earth, the Lord shall be thy part. Exalt, O dust and ashes, the Lord shall be thy part, his only, his forever. Thou shalt be, and thou art, 
Exalt, O dust and ashes, the Lord shall be thy part. His only, his forever, thou shalt be, and thou art. So the message of the book is to persevere. Christ is victor. Look to him, and you can make it through whatever Satan and this world throws at you. One thing that I saw today, just as I was listening to the end part of the book, is that there is a big emphasis here on perseverance in the midst of trial. And this is in chapter 21, verse 7. He who overcomes, this, this thing of overcoming, what do you got to overcome? You got to overcome all this opposition from the enemy in this great spiritual war that, that you're in. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. The Lord shall be your part. But look, this is what struck, struck out to me. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murders, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake, of fi- uh, lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. <clears throat> but he starts it out by saying, the cowardly. You cannot, you're not going to make it if you're cowardly. It just, just hit me today. I mean, this is what he's saying to these people. One of the things he's saying is, you're going to have to stand strong in the Lord and not back down or you won't make it. Well, we'll go on, Lord willing, from there next time. <clears throat>